All right. Welcome back to our second week of, uh, of I study. Uh, I hope you enjoyed last week. If you weren't here last week, I got to flip the lights or something to get everybody's attention. No. If you weren't here last week, what we, we had, uh, we had uh, Dr. Michael Watson from Kelvin uh, College here to talk to us a little bit about politics, about how we can navigate the, the, the uh, political landscape and kind of how we can think about politics in a way that isn't so polarizing to us, that isn't so uh, us versus them kind of thing, but how we as Christians navigate kind of the, a way to, to hold our beliefs strongly uh, and yet still understand where other people are coming from so that we can lovingly uh, engage in dialogue and discussion. Uh, this week we have um, Dr. Uh, Mike, uh, I can't pronounce your last name, Pels, sorry, Dr. Mike, Mike Pels, uh, also from Kelvin. Uh, and he is going to kind of walk us through how to use the framework we, we, we talked about last week. How do we engage in these kind of political things? So I'm going to actually get out of the way. I'm just going to open with prayer, and then I'll hand it right over to you. Father God, thank you uh, for another day, a day in which we can uh, come together to worship you this morning, but also engage in discussions of how we as Christians engage with a larger world, engage with our political structure, engage with... Uh, the world at large, and, and, and how we can do that well, how we can represent our Christian values uh, in an atmosphere that not, isn't necessarily Christian. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you bless this, this conversation this morning uh, and that you be here with us. pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, it's great to be here, and I feel like that's a little formal, so I'm just going to take a seat right here and, uh, and be at your level. So... Um, I, I really admire what Brent is doing, and I really like just that, that this church is able to talk about hard issues and issues that um, can be uncomfortable and, and issues where we, we disagree and we can talk about these issues in, in loving ways. So um, as, uh, as Brent mentioned, I teach at Calvin College, and I study political behavior in terms of understanding uh, why people make the kinds of decisions they do uh, and some of their issue attitudes and then how we how sort of evangelicals, how evangelicals view different issues and some of the changes uh, if we think about sort of Generation X evangelicals and millennial evangelicals and, and how uh, we see some minor changes in terms of, of how evangelicals are viewing the, the political world. So today what I wanted to do is sort of think about um, how to process all the information that's going to be thrown at us in the next year. Um, and, uh, and so we have a lot of big decisions to make in the next year. Um, probably the biggest decision is uh, who will be our next president. Um, and we are just starting that process. And so uh, how many of you watched the, uh, the Republican debate on Wednesday? Okay, good, good. Um, maybe some fireworks. Uh, there was uh, uh, some notable quips. Um, we are just in the beginning of this. We have... Uh, Ten more Republican uh, debates, uh, and then we have six more uh, or six Democratic debates. The first one, I think, is October 13th or October 15th. Um, and we have a lot of candidates to choose from. Uh, we have 15 Republican candidates right now. We have three Democratic candidates. We, prob we might have more Democratic candidates. So a lot of people talking to us, uh, trying to relate to us and, and to talk uh, about a lot of issues and and to jab each other and and we'll, we'll listen to a lot of stump speeches a lot of of policy positions 
uh, a lot of political rhetoric. And, and the question that I want to talk about today is how do we process all of that um, in, in ways that, that make us better citizens, um, ways that, that hopefully we can sort of glean what, what is useful out of all of that information and maybe not fall into traps uh, where uh, we, we get into sort of a partisan mode or we get into an ideological mode and, and we start sort of looking at politics as, as a game rather than as a, as a way of serving other people, as a way of, of building bridges to others. So I want to um, introduce sort of two ways of thinking about politics um, and, and sort of talk about some of the research behind sort of these two approaches, talk about sort of the fruits of, of each of these approaches, uh, and then if we have time to talk about some specific issues um, and, and really sort of, of maybe start a dialogue between all of you in terms of, of how you are responding to certain issues um, and, and what you're thinking about in terms of, of this coming election. So there's one way that we could think about um, taking in all of this information and processing them. And, and we could think about this in terms of a mindset. We could think about politics as a spectator um, or, or think, of it as, um, the, the, think of it as a sport where there's a competition between different parties or different ideological sort of points of view where we have one side that we're rooting for one particular side over the other. Uh, and we can think about this in terms of partisanship, um, ideological polarization, even um, sort of identity politics. It, it follows the same sort of logic that we have uh, sort of we, we are rooting for one side over the other. And politics is a game or, or, or politics is this sport uh, where we are sort of actively rooting uh, for our side. And there's a lot of, of evidence to suggest that this is sort of how we're wired, that this is sort of human, this is sort of second nature to us in terms of, of thinking about partisanship. Uh, one of the um, most fundamental studies in political behavior, the American Voter, which was published in the 1960s, was the first time that, that scholars were actually looking at national surveys that were done in a scientific way. They were studying partisanship, and they realized that partisanship is not sort of a, a product of us looking at all of the different issues and then deciding which party actually best reflects what we believe, but it was really a process of socialization. So as we grow up, if we hear cues, uh, if we hear our parents say, oh, that uh, Bill Clinton, he's a, he's a great guy, or Reagan, he's, he's such a, a great person, that we would take those cues and, and, and we would sort of adopt them as our own. And it had nothing to do with where we stood on issues, but, but sort of what we heard in our formative years, uh, and that became our partisanship. So partisanship was not rational. It was simply this emotional, psychological sort of attachment um, to a particular group. And, and the funny thing is, is we don't even challenge this as, as we grow up, and partisanship in this way is very stable throughout our lifetimes that we don't ever think about, well, wait a sec, maybe... Maybe I am in the wrong party, given, given what I believe. Or at least that's really difficult uh, for people to come to that point. Okay, so, so to some degree, partisanship can be a, a bit of a trap where uh, we grow up and we listen to things. And we don't necessarily question them. Um, and, and therefore, uh, to some degree, we're not being really independent thinkers um, by, by sort of this way of, of looking at partisanship. 
Okay. Um, and then we can also think about um, sort of ideology. Oftentimes, ideology is more connected um, to you know specific issues, but but we also uh, have that same sort of, of competitive spirit when it comes to ideology, where um, you are uh, you are rooting for one ideology, and you think the other sort of ideology or, or other ideologies um, are out to ruin the country, or or they there's nothing good in them, and, and you, you choose one side or another. Uh, another sort of recent manifestation um, is identity politics, where, where we choose people that are like us in terms of running for elected office, or, or we tend to connect with people that are like us, that have the same experiences, um, and, and, and we, to some degree, then look at other people as, as different and, and probably not uh, the best representatives for, for our own perspectives. Okay. So in all of these cases, politics becomes a game. It becomes us versus them, uh, where we look at the other side and we say, I have nothing in common with these people, um, that these people don't share my viewpoints, my values, and, and therefore um, I, I don't necessarily want to commune with them. I, I don't want to engage in any conversations with them. That, that wouldn't be very productive. Okay. So the fruits of, of this type of, of politics is a lot of what we see in politics today, right? In terms of um, what is the ultimate goal of politics if you're sort of acting as, as politics as a spectator sport? Well, um, you're just trying to get your side to win. Um, and, and so you're just trying to amass more power for your particular party or your particular ideological point of view. And we have more of a narrow self-interest rather than what is best for all of us, what's best for the whole country. Um, you also focus more on strategy rather than substance. So it's not only sort of how do we win the next election, but what do we need to do? What, what kind of messaging do we need to have rather than what types of policies would actually address this problem or that problem in an effective way? Um, you delight in trash talking. Right, that that if you can put down the other side, good for you. Right, and and we've seen this a lot in in a lot of the uh, Republican debates in terms of, of different jabs and um, and um, to some degree, if we're in this mindset, we we like that. That's kind of red meat uh, that that we respond to. Um, another thing, you take advantage of other people's missteps or, or misstatements. Right, um, I think uh, Jeb Bush a couple months ago said something about reproductive. Uh, or, or women's health, that we only spend this much on women's health. And it was obviously a misstatement. But what happened, other candidates jumped on that. And basically, rather than giving him the benefit of the doubt, saying, well, he probably didn't mean that, or this, we say, oh, this is exactly what he meant, and this is his ulterior motives. And, and therefore, we pounce, rather than, than say, well, what, what exactly did he mean? Um, you're more apt to react to zingers. Um, and, and not necessarily careful, nuanced arguments. Um, I think one of the things, and this is where I'm kind of stepping into um, sort of analyzing things, I think one of the problems that uh, Rand Paul is having right now is he has a lot of nuanced policy arguments um, about, about different issues, and that's very difficult to present um, in a debate where you only have, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, and, and, and then also you can't necessarily package that in a, in a tight sort of quip, okay? And so, but if we, if we think about politics as, um, as a game, we don't necessarily entertain um, a lot of nuances when it comes to policy. Um, 
You also, if you believe in politics as a game, you think the other side really can't do anything right, right? That, that they don't really have any good ideas. And so this gets into that language in terms of Washington is broken, right? And, and obviously Washington's not broken. If Washington was broken, we'd all feel that right now, that, that we would all feel that dysfunction. Okay, but, but we uh, sort of take a very negative, pessimistic view of, of the other side and what they're doing. Um, also, to some degree, if we follow this sort of model, we open ourselves up to manipulation, where uh, we think that, that our party or our ideological viewpoint, that they, they can't do anything wrong. Um, or we follow them blindly, rather than becoming independent thinkers, and to think about the issue outside of what the talking heads in the Republican Party, or the talking heads in the Democratic Party are thinking. And, and so to, to move beyond that is very difficult to do. Um, and then fi finally, um, sort of we, we don't even think about governing to some degree if we follow this type of politics. It's about elections. It's about um, sort of the, the competition that comes with elections. Rather than after elections, what do we need to do? We need to make good policy. We need to govern. Um, and to some degree, that's an afterthought uh, when we think about this view of politics. So, so hopefully I've convinced you that this sort of viewpoint in, in terms of politics it doesn't necessarily lead uh, to a very positive sort of view of, of politics, but it's very easy to fall prey um, into this type of mindset. The other type of mindset um, that I want to introduce is, um, is what I'll, I'll call politics as a respectful conversation. Um, and here, rather than sort of assuming that, that we have uh, the, the best understanding of things. We, we see politics as a way of understanding different perspectives in society that are out there. And then try to form some sort of common good. Try to listen to everyone and, and try to recognize, well, what does justice require uh, for all different groups in society? And, and so here, it's a little uncomfortable because we're, we're put in a vulnerable spot. We're saying we don't necessarily have all the answers. Um, that, that party, our party, maybe doesn't have all the answers, that one ideology doesn't have all the answers, and maybe we just don't know uh, whether or not um, a, their, this policy is good or bad at this particular moment in time. Um, one of the heroes at Calvin College is Paul Henry, um, who is a, a, a Republican representative in the House. And one, of the, one of the sort of ideas that he had was this idea that there's a lot of moral ambiguity um, in politics, that, that oftentimes we don't know how a policy is going to play out until we actually sort of better understand that specific policy. And so if we take an issue like um, the Affordable Care Act, um, we can't just say on its face that this is bad policy or, or this is good um, policy. We have to really study it because it's a, um, it's, it's a, a complex sort of, of set of policies. Um, and, and so we, we have to really dive into those details before we can say that this is a good policy or this is a bad policy and, and to really weigh all the things in that policy. Um, also, if we, if we think about politics as a respectful conversation, um, it doesn't mean that we abdicate our own views. It doesn't mean that, that we surrender our own views, but we say, you know, we, we only have one view. We only understand maybe one dimension of an issue. And there are a lot of other dimensions, how I sort of experience um, sort of the police and, and interactions with the police, very different than an African-American or a Latino. And so I should understand those people's experience 
as I think about what public policy should look like. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, that my experiences are not valid. Uh, it's just one of several experiences that should inform how collectively sort of we, we deal with, uh, with these issues. Now, it's difficult to, to really extract a lot of these sorts of experiences that other people have. Uh, and that's why it has to be a conversation. It can't be a debate. Uh, it can't be something uh, where we express our side and then, uh, and then the other side expresses their view. It has to be something where we listen, where we actively listen um, and we, we sort of express um, sort of the, our desire to learn more, to understand more about someone else's life, someone else's experience. Um, now, this idea of, of politics as a respectful conversation, um, there's not a lot of evidence um, in terms of, of looking at this. Um, there's um, a famous book um, called Bowling Alone, and how many of you have heard of Bowling Alone by, um, it's a, by a, f a famous um, sociologist, Robert Putnam. Um, so he looked at sort of um, the different um, levels of, of um, activity that, that people um, sort of were involved in, in terms of, of involved in civic groups, involved in churches, involved just in a whole host of, of organizations around their neighborhood, and he, he, he was looking basically in 1960s up to the 1980s, and, and what he found was that people were less and less involved in, in their immediate neighborhood, that they were essentially bowling alone, and I can't imagine a, a sadder picture than someone bowling alone. But, but the idea was that, that people are not as engaged, they're not as connected to people around them now than they were in the 1960s. Um, and, and they weren't necessarily involved in the lives of other people around them. And, and so and, and he sort of started or, or, or coined this, this concept called social capital. Um, and social capital is this idea of, of basically trust, that as we interact with each other, as we get to know each other, uh, we start to, to understand where each other is coming from. And we, it's easier to trust each other. It's it's either it's easier um, to 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 basically believe the best about someone after you invest time in them, and if we have a lot of social capital, that means that we can come together and we can solve uh, a lot of social problems together because we have an underlying level of trust. And so, part of understanding why, uh, to some degree, we are so divided as a society is that we've lost a lot of that trust, especially at the, the local level, that we're not involved in civic organizations. We're, uh, we're connected to different types of communities. Um, we can also think about church, that, that, that people are attending church less, and that has all sort of diminished this idea of, of social capital or trust, where we don't have those underlying relationships, and so it's really difficult um, to trust each other and, and to, to come together uh, to form relationships. Okay? And so, um, un unfortunately, that's a bit of bad news. Um, that When we think about it, if we want to promote this idea of politics as a respectful conversation, we've lost um, some of, of these relationships that, that make it possible. And it means that we need to think um, about sort of how, do we, how do we reestablish these bonds or how do we, uh, how do we reconnect uh, with people. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to that here in a second. Now, if we think about what are the fruits of politics as a respectful conversation? Uh, well, first of all, we're curious 
about other people's experiences rather than sort of maybe prejudging them or, or, or putting them in some sort of, of partisan or ideological box. We, we, we want to listen. We, we're, we want to understand where each other is coming from. And, and so politics not, doesn't necessarily become this, this sort of exercise where you're trying to expo- express your point of view, but you, you want other people to express their point of view. Um, and so you better understand where they're coming from. Um, you're much more charitable um, in your assessments of, of other people um, and of other perspectives. So, so rather than sort of once again sort of quickly saying, well, you, you say this because you believe in this and you believe in that, um, say, well, um, this is what I think you, you mean or believe, but could you, could you tell me more? Um, and and you're, you're trying to get a full understanding of where someone comes from. You move beyond sound bites and, and quips if, if, if politics is a conversation. Um, and, and you're more engaged in, in uh, sort of longer conversations. And, and, and you want to know kind of um, the nuances of, of politics and of policy. And you're more inter- interested in substance. How can this policy address all of us or, or address all of the problems that we face you're an independent thinker if you, if you treat politics as a conversation. Um, and, and you look beyond party or ideology, uh, which they don't necessarily offer uh, this sort of conversation. They don't, they don't sort of spark these conversations. These are conversations that you have to start yourself. Um, you also, um, as you talk with different people and you understand different people's experience, you, you start to see that we're all, to some degree, the same. We all have the same fears. We all have the same sort of, of um, needs at a basic level, and you start to find common ground. And so uh, at, at some point, these sorts of, of exchanges, you start to see, well, there, there are ways that we can come together. There are ways that we can find um, and we can gr- agree on the right policy. Um, and then the, the great thing about this type of approach to politics is that you – um, you see sort of political sparring and, and almost all the coverage that you'll find on Fox News or CNN, you'll see them as a waste of time. This idea of who's ahead, who's behind, um, sort of who said what. Uh, and, and, you know, recently it's, it's really been about Trump. What has Trump said today? Uh, what has Trump said last week? To some degree, that doesn't matter. That's a waste of time if you think of, of politics as a conversation. It's a distraction. From, from the real work of politics, which is um, to really understand where each other's coming from, to find common ground, uh, and then try to make policy that, that sort of extends or, or, or um, sort of achieves justice for everyone. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
that's a great question, and I don't necessarily have the, a great answer for you. I, I think that you have to unplug um, to some degree, um, and or at least you have to take in a lot more information. So, um, you know, I think it's easy if, if you're a Democrat to just listen to MSNBC all the time, and that's your primary news source, or if you're a conservative, you might just want to listen to Fox News all the time. Um, but if you, if you really want to understand what everyone is saying, maybe you watch both, or maybe you read five or six different newspapers to really understand the different dimensions of a particular policy. So um, that's one way that you can educate yourself um, and, and, um, and get a, a more nuanced picture of things. Um, I also think that, to some degree, we also have to unplug from, um, to some degree, the, the whole um, sort of, of national politics scene and I think we can start from the grassroots in, in terms of um, trying to, to um, make these conversations happen at, at the local level and I think we can and I think the church is a great place to start um, and I think that that once we to some degree recognize that politics can be much more meaningful like that it can encompass a lot more views I, I think that's going to affect who we elect um, and some of the expectations that we have uh, for our elected leaders. So um, I, I think that there's a, there is an assumption that, that we look to people at the very top and we say, well, they should change how they do things. They should change how they sort of speak to us or they, should, they shouldn't be as partisan. They shouldn't be as, as polarizing. Uh, but to some degree, we have power ourselves where we can sort of, of change um, sort of the, the landscape in terms of how we um, sort of think about citizenship. And I think change can come at the grassroots level. I, I, I don't think change is necessarily going to come from the top down. I, I think that, and to some degree, I think while this is challenging, I think it's good news in the sense that, that we, have, um, we have power in, in our own communities and our own relationships um, to sort of change some of, some of the calculations in politics, so I don't know if I don't know if I answered your question. I mean, I, I think it's challenging because I think that we we are trapped in this mindset uh, in politics where uh, we feel kind of blown around one way or another. Um, and I think, to some degree, I, I think um, if we want to practice politics that's much more meaningful, uh, we really have to sort of go out on our own um, and and really reconnect with people around us. Uh, rather than sort of thinking about um, sort of the, the national um, scene when it comes to politics. So, and I think that there's some, some really, there's some good, good news in terms of how churches are, are, um, are sort of engaged in this. For example, um, multi-ethnic churches. Multi-ethnic churches, they're about sort of um, build, breaking down these walls between different groups, different racial groups, different um, socioeconomic groups, um, and really trying to cultivate a sense of understanding between different groups that, that have very different experiences um, out in the world. And, and I, I think that's a compelling model in terms of, of really how the church can, um, can, can sort of look at something as thorny, as, as difficult as race, and say we can, we can overcome these differences and we can be one community. The emergent church is another model where uh, you have people that are sort of become part of a particular community and, and try to, once again, um, start a conversation between people who have different views of, of what church is, 
um, and what church should look like. Um, and so I think Christians have the capacity to really start um, this particular conversation. Um, and, and certainly it's, you know, it's part of who we are in terms of how we love each other. Um, I think in, in politics we can love each other by listening to each other um, and, and respecting each other in terms of our different politics. Um, so so I, I'm very hopeful in, in terms of the capacity of the church um, to really change politics so it's one of, of, of understanding and compassion rather than one of, of partisanship and, and divisiveness. I also think that, um, well, in the back of my mind, I wonder who else will, um, could, could really um, bring politics back to a, a level where it's about understanding and it's about love. And, and I think Christians have an imperative in terms of, of playing an active role in politics because I, I think that it's part of, of, uh, of our mission. Um, and, and I think it's something that we could, um, you know, something that we could contribute to in a, in a meaningful way uh, that, that I think is to some degree our responsibility uh, as, um, as being followers of Christ and as being citizens. So, um, yeah, that, that's all the prepared remarks I had, but uh, I'm more than happy to open it up to, to questions about what I talked about or just questions about um, any issue that's on your mind. No, that, that's that's a challenge that, that we have. I, I would say that if in I, I study parties too, and, and if you look at the the party system today versus in the 1970s or 60s, you know you had such a thing in the 70s uh, of sort of a moderate Democrat, a moderate Republican, and so I think polarization where um, you know most Republicans are conservative, most Democrats um, are, are progressive or liberal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's hardened the edges um, of each party. And, and so um, I think that, that now, um, you know, political parties are, are much more uh, strict in terms of, of their ideology. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, uh, where I think that um, you could be a Republican, but you could be a, a different type of 
Republican, you could be a moderate, you could be uh, more progressive, et cetera. And I think if we understand the nuances of policies, I think maybe we could cultivate those different types of, of, of partisanships or, or different strands of, of partisanship. And, and to some degree, we, we can see that in, um, in sort of the Republican list of candidates right now in terms of, you know, that, that um, sort of uh, Ted Cruz is very different than Rand Paul. Uh, it's different than, than Jeb Bush. Um, I'm not sure where to place Trump at this moment. Um, but, um, but they are they're, they're variants of, of uh, a party. Um, and, and so I think there is some diversity within the party. I also think that, um, you know, what um, I have a little bit of a soft spot for Ronald Reagan. And what I liked about Ronald Reagan and sort of Tip O'Neill is at the end of the day, they would get together and have a drink. So after sort of bickering, after arguing, they would at the end come together and, and still be friends. And we don't necessarily see that in terms of any sort of community between Republicans and Democrats. So even if, even if we are um, in sort of a two-party system where, where there are hard edges, we can still at the end of the day say we, you know, we still want what's best our country and we can still have those kinds of relationships but it is it is a challenge and it's even a challenge uh, a bigger challenge today because of, of sort of this polarization uh, where it's it, it's difficult to see the different sort of gradations of, of uh, Republican and of a Democrat um, so but I, I do think that they're out there and I think part of it is you know um, we're forced um, to, to sort of um, side with sort of um, one sort of, of type of a Republican, one type of Democrat, and, and I think we can acknowledge that there's some, there's some flexibility, there's some room there um, in terms of, of uh, being a different type of Republican or a different type of Democrat. So, yeah, good question. Um, other questions or comments or... Like ten percent, fifteen percent. I mean, it, it, it's it's remarkable how stable it is, and it almost it requires like a, a crisis, a crisis in terms of maybe a personal crisis where maybe you lose your job, and you recognize, oh well, welfare is is good, um, and I benefit from it, or, or I I understand this now, or something like nine eleven, uh, where we we experience a particular sort of event together, and and so if you're a Democrat, you say, oh well, maybe we do need to to look at national defense in a new way. So, so there are instances where we kind of wake up and, and we recognize, oh, well, maybe I need to update my views. But it, it happens very rarely and almost takes a, a pretty significant event. Yeah, yeah. And so and when we think about there's a difference between partisanship and, um, and voting, uh, partisanship is this emotional, psychological um, sort of draw to a particular party, um, and and that predicts someone's voting behavior most of the time. But there are times when people, um, you know, uh, decide to vote for the other other party um, in in certain elections. So it, it doesn't always perfectly predict someone's voting behavior. So yeah, good. Um, I think there was a hand over here. Yeah.
Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I, I haven't seen any polling that that looks. I mean, the the interesting thing about Trump is that um, he is appealing to a lot of different groups, and and he's doing pretty well among evangelicals. Um, I, I don't know if he's necessarily taking all the evangelical vote, but but certainly a significant number of evangelicals. I, I think if I had to, and, and um, Trump is stumping all of us political scientists because uh, he's bucking all of the trends when it comes to conventional wisdom. Um, I would say that, that the reason why Trump is doing so well is that um, we are um, we are sick of, of um, politics as usual. We want an outsider. Uh, he's, in a sense, refreshing. I think that we are sick of the scripted politician. We are sick of the calculating politician. We are uh, sick of sort of being manipulated by uh, a particular type of candidate who's very careful in terms of, of uh, all of the, the things that they say. And, and so I think Trump just showing up and saying whatever he wants to and to some degree not caring what other people think, that's, that's refreshing. We, we, that, that's very different than what we're used to. Um, and so I think that's part of his appeal. And then he's the consummate outsider in terms of that, that he uh, has no involvement in politics. And so he, he seems like he's not connected to all of the, the things that we don't necessarily like about politics. Um, I, I think that hopefully as evangelicals recognize more of, of who Trump is or what he stands for, that, that these numbers will change, that, that this is sort of the first – uh, appearance of, of Trump, and this is sort of the first impression of Trump. As, as we as we dig down, we'll recognize. Well, made us, maybe maybe he doesn't necessarily reflect the values of evangelicals, and, and sort of this newness wears off um, over time. But but I, I think that a lot of people are, are um, have have been um, sort of enamored with uh, with Trump um, because he's such a different type of candidate and doesn't doesn't follow the, the traditional rules. Uh, of of a politician, so yeah, good, Um, you know, I think that the rise of sort of the non-politician um, uh, to some degree is, um, you know, this a lot of cynicism about um, politics in general and cynicism about um, sort of institutions. Like, um, the, does anyone know the approval rate of Congress right now? Yeah, it's like in the it's eleven or twelve percent right now, um, and, and so uh, we and and if you went through a lot of different institutions, if we think about the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has gotten uh, more political um, in the last couple of sessions, and so we we have a, a lower opinion of the Supreme Court, and so I, I think we just feel uh, sort of cynical about all of these different government institutions, and, and that tends to play well to an outsider, someone who's not connected. 
um, to what we consider these dysfunctional institutions. Um, and, and, and I think that there is a thought that if we get an outsider, if we elect an outsider, they can, they can come in and they can re refashion Congress. They can remake the White House. They can remake um, our um, sort of uh, our politics. And um, I think that, that, in my point of view, that's scary thinking. That reminds me a lot of President Obama and Hope and Change, where uh, we put all of these expectations in one person, that, that this person could come in and could basically change the, the tone and tenor of our politics. And no one person can do that. We have to do that together. And so I think looking to an outsider, we're, we're sort of we're facing the same type of, of impossible situation where we're going to be we're going to be disappointed uh, like um, we were disappointed with President Bush or President Obama in terms of that that at the end of the day he couldn't change um, the the, the um, sort of tenor of our politics so so I, I think the outsiders I, I think that I, I don't think that it's bad that we considering outsiders but I think we have to have realistic expectations in terms of how they can actually refashion um, and change um, sort of all of these very complicated um, aspects of our politics. So I don't know if I answered your question. So, um, yeah. You're gonna make me feel old, aren't you? Um, so uh, yeah, you know millennials. Um, so um, there's an interesting trend. Um, they they are what we call engaged um, citizens, where um, they they're not necessarily disengaged from politics, but they're um, more. Um, they highlight kind of the the more. Um, participatory aspects of um, of politics. So, a millennial would be more apt to protest or demonstrate uh, rather than vote. Um, not to say that they don't vote, uh, but um, they would sort of say, "Well, what can I do in my neighborhood um, to to rectify the situation or that situation?" So, so that to me, that's good news. That millennials are not necessarily completely disengaged from politics. They but they take a local view and they say, "Well, what?" What can we do um, in this setting or in that setting to try to address the problem? The, the issue, though, is that um, at the end of the day, we have to invest in institutions, um, that, that we have to think about Congress and how Congress is working. And, and we can't necessarily, if we, we could protest and demonstrate, but 
but that's not necessarily going to lead to lasting change, and that, that's not necessarily going to lead to a great national policy. And so, you know, at some level, politics is boring. It's about reading through a, a legislation um, and really kind of looking at it with a fine tooth. And, um, and to some degree, millennials haven't necessarily recognized that. Uh, and, and I think that that is a, um, if we look down the road, that, that could be a real challenge. Yeah. Scary, yeah. He actually wrote a textbook for American politics um, because, you know, publishers said, well, this is one way that we can sort of access um, younger, uh, younger people. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, good. Um, yeah. Um, I'll go, this is my wife, Tori, so, <laughs> yeah, um, so, uh, and, and we're complimentary in the fact that I'm, I'm not really on Facebook, and so maybe you have some suggestions in terms of uh, uh, more on the social media side, uh, but I, um, I tend to look at realclearpolitics.com, um, and at Real Clear Politics, it's basically a site that, that gives you um, a link to um, to kind of the articles that, that that people are talking about, and it comes from a variety of sources, um, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News, CNN, um, and and it, it, it's a great if you just want to um, sort of uh, uh, listen to the different perspectives. It's all right there, and you don't necessarily have to go to multiple sites. Um, uh, and I also, um, to some degree, I um, you know there. There are standard bearers in, in terms of, of the um, progressive or the conservative side. So, I mean, if you if you want to sort of compare them, you could go to the New York Times if, or Washington Post if you wanted something a little more liberal, or the Wall Street Journal, um, or um, sort of the Washington Times. Um, but I think part of the process is knowing uh, that there's no sort of objective news source that every news source has. Uh, a bit of spin, recognizing that, and then uh, making sure that you're going to multiple sites. Um, but, but for me, Real Clear Politics is a good site that gives you a lot of different um, links to, to a host of different sources. Um, I also like kind of the um, Telegraph or the Guardian um, because that gives you an international um, sort of view. I think, unfortunately, news media in the United States, we tend to focus on what's going on here rather than halfway around the world. 
Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think that there is, um, and, and the media kind of follows what, what's popular and what people want, and so we don't necessarily get a lot of coverage in terms of what's going, what's going on in, in Lansing. Um, and I think that, you know, um, to some degree we have to sort of follow traditional newspapers in terms of following um, local politics. I, I think that um, actually um, sort of uh, Michigan Public Radio does a pretty good job of following what's going on um, in, in Lansing. But it's it's a lot more work, um, just because it's not necessarily something that we can um, sort of pull up uh, um, very quickly on, on a website. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think that, um, Voting um, maybe is the um, the last act of a process, right? And so, I, I think sometimes we we focus on our vote because it's an expression uh, of of who we are, or we feel empowered. Uh, but to some degree, what do we do before we we vote? Hopefully, we research, right? We understand where where candidates are. We understand their background. We understand the issues. We understand. Uh, sort of where people fall on the issues or the complexity behind each issue. And to some degree, that may be more important than, than actually voting, right? Because at, at the end of this process, we um, are better citizens. We know um, sort of what people are talking about, what's important, um, and we have a degree of perspective on things. And, and then hopefully we do vote because uh, obviously our vote, um, you know, it, it, it matters in the sense that we are, um, you know, we are exercising our citizenship but I would say that, yeah, when we think about we actually had to calculate our, our, whether or not our vote matters, we would say um, that voting is irrational. That's, that's what um, scholars um, sort of concluded 20 years ago, that, that voting is ir irrational if we wanted to look at sort of um, the, the, the degree to which our vote actually matters in the final outcome. Um, but I think that the, the process before we actually cast our vote is, is significant. Um, and, and hopefully we invest time in, in that um, and we better understand the issues that we're facing um, through that process. So, um, yeah.
No, I think that's good. I think, and this is where I, I'll insert a little commentary. Um, I, I think that we um, we live in a in a dangerous time in the sense that that I think that um, and, and whether or not you know you you like President Obama or, or not, um, he has amassed a lot of power in the White House, that, and um, and that power to some degree has been taken away from Congress, um, and then I think the bureaucracy how the bureaucracy interprets different um, pieces of, of legislation um, and, and to some degree takes power away from the Congress or the people, I, I think that's dangerous. That's a dangerous precedent. And, and it's not didn't necessarily start with President Obama. It's, it, it's been uh, happening over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. I, I think that President Obama has, uh, has sort of uh, taken it to a new level. Um, but I, I think that um, if, if we really want more of a say um, international politics. I, I think, to some degree, we undervalue Congress, um, and if we do that, then then other you know other players will will take that power um, and and sort of um, take action on this issue and, or that issue. Um, but but anyway, that that means that we have to vote. Um, we have to recognize that that this is an important uh, thing that we do as as citizens um, because Congress um, is our direct vote. Um, and, and it's how we can um, express um, our, our viewpoints um, most effectively. So, yeah. I think, how, how late does this go until? Okay, okay. Any other questions? Okay. All right. Thank you very much for, for sharing with us this morning. And I hope that over the last two weeks, we've gained some good perspective on how to engage in these conversations. So we talked about how on the big picture, big stage of things, it seems really difficult uh, to have these rational conversations. But in a group like this, uh, it's less difficult. Um, not, it hasn't always historically been that way in the church. We have been polarized like everyone else. Uh, but hopefully we can set those things aside and have good conversations about all of the different perspectives. The truth that of politics, truth of anything is complex, and we have to realize that and how, how we can kind of navigate through those complexities. Um, nothing is as easy as it's all this or it's all that. Um, that would be a lot easier to do things that way, but it's not. So hopefully as we leave this week, uh, that we can, we can engage in some of those discussions around here, and hopefully they can spread into our greater communities. Um, so hopefully as you go home, you can do that. Um, I did want to, want to, before we broke here as well, to give you a heads up of what's kind of coming up. I mentioned it last week, and I forgot to mention it at the beginning of this as well. Uh, this year for this space, uh, we, we're, we're doing things a little bit differently than we have the last couple years. You notice the high schoolers, some of them are here, but many of them are on the other side here uh, because we, we're going to engage with this, this thing a little bit differently. Um, so if you have a high schooler, high schoolers are always welcome on this side. However, there's space where you are not welcome with them. So sorry about that. Uh, they have their own space. They can be there. Uh, to do their stuff, but they're always welcome over here. But on this side of things this year, what we're going to be doing the whole year is engaging in these difficult kind of conversations. So we, we open with politics. How do we engage with the difficult, difficult conversations of politics? Next week, we're off. We come back, and we're going to be doing a cultural intelligence um, workshop. Uh, so dealing with race. Uh, you mentioned some of that as being the, 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 um, one of the things that we as a church need to do a better job of engaging with. Uh, so we will be, uh, the, the denomination has a workshop that they're going to help us through to kind of understand what we don't know about race. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but our church isn't very diverse. 
it's just true. That's kind of, right? We're not. Um, and so, you know, that's, which is not, that's not to put us down. It's just the way it is. But I, sometimes then that can give us blind spots into what's happening in the, even the greater Grand Rapids area uh, with race. Um, we're, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the greater Grand Rapids area is one of the more segregated places in the country. Um, and I think that can be shocking to people sometimes, but it's true. We're a pretty segregated city. Um, that would end whatever connotations that has with it. So for the next three weeks after we break next week, we're going to be engaging with race. Uh, in November, we're going to be circling back around to the topic of homosexuality in the church. How do we do a better job having that conversation? So we'll be doing that in November. Uh, we'll be combined again with the high schoolers in December. That will be a little bit lighter. Uh, and then we're going to come back around to immigration uh, in January. So we're going to kind of keep hammering on these kind of big deal things uh, and engaging with them in a good way. So hopefully that is something that excites you and will keep you coming back each month. Um, I think it's so important for us as a church to get to be educated about these things, to learn how to talk well about these things so that we can actually be a moderating voice, a loving voice amongst the conversations that get real heated. So hopefully that's exciting to you and I'm looking forward to this year. So why don't we close in prayer and then we will go off to wherever we go. Father God, thank you again for, for this space and this time. Uh, thank you for uh, the government that you've given us. Whether we believe that they're doing a good job or not, we, we, we do live in a place that grants us a lot of freedom, that grants us a lot of liberty, that grants us uh, ability to make a, a good life for ourselves and, and to worship it the way we want to and have these discussions the way we want to. Uh, and not all places on earth have that. We want to pray for those places that are, that are uh, right now amidst uh, high levels of persecution or unrest or trouble. We think of the Middle East and with ISIS and Syria and, those, and all the refugees right now who are running away from a, from a political structure that has not even kept them safe. Uh, and so, Lord, we want to we extend our, our hearts and our support out to them as well. Uh, and then really focus that even though we can get very discouraged by our system here, we realize that you've blessed us with something pretty amazing. And so, Lord, as we go out... Um, into our regular lives to pray that that we can continue to have good discussions around very difficult truths and that your spirit can guide us towards wisdom pray all of these things in your son's name amen thank you and